Seven of your leaders attended the leadership conference yesterday in Lincoln. Uh, to their credit and to your credit, folks. Um, so I would say, uh, fasten your seat belts. You've got seven folks here committed to taking this congregation to higher ground, and uh, they'll do it. And they made that they made that pilgrimage out of love for this uh, church family. And uh, praise God uh, for that and for them and for you. Now, I'm going to do something uh, <clears throat> you may never have experienced before, but I hope you stay with me this morning. I'm going to take you into the classroom with, uh, with Solomon of old on the subject of, uh, of uh, li- liquor and drinking and drunkenness. And to sort of set the stage... <clears throat> Uh, just a few statistics. I don't think I need to regale you with uh, the threat uh, this poses really to our entire culture and nation. But in 2010, alcohol misuse cost the United States $249 billion. An estimated 88,000 people die from alcohol annually, making alcohol the fourth leading preventable cause of death in the U.S., in 2014, alcohol-impaired driving fatalities accounted for 9,967, almost 10,000 deaths, 31%, one out of every three driving fatalities. In 2014, WHO, World Health Organization, reported that alcohol contributed to more than 200 diseases and injuries. Over 10% of the United States' children live with an alcoholic parent, one out of every ten. Fifty-eight percent of college students drank in one-month survey in 2015. Alcohol problems are greater than all the other drug problems of our culture combined. And they usually refer to this as drugs and alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. Now, uh, yes, there we are. We've already done... uh, Luxury, liquor, or learning, and now liquor. And as I mentioned before, Solomon, whenever he tried anything, we know he tried it with all of his might. And so we're going to look at these uh, passages of Scripture in just a moment. Okay. Uh Uh-oh. This is new. Okay. Alcoholism in the U.S. 18%. Look at that slice of pie. That is a problem. Um, of epidemic proportions in the U.S. population. Alcohol use by adults in the U.S., 37% always drink at low-risk levels, although state police say that the threat on the highway is not the alcoholic, it's the social drinker, because it's the social drinker that thinks he or she can handle it, and they can't. 28% drink at heavy or at-risk levels. Three in ten adults drink at levels that put them at risk for alcoholism. One out of every ten persons who begins to drink becomes an alcoholic. You have a 10% chance of becoming an alcoholic with that first drink. 35% don't drink at all. Here are the scriptures. Pleasures, Solomon tells us, are meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon said to himself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also um, proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried to cheer myself with wine. 
Does it cheer? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Oh, boy. There. Okay, here is uh, the section of Proverbs that addresses that very subject. And we're going to look at this closely because for many, many years I have taught this subject in psychology classes, in graduate classes, in abnormal psychology, in clinical psychology, as well as classes in... in, uh, We actually had to set up a class in order to qualify uh, professional counselors for licensing a class in addictions counseling itself as an entire class. Solomon says, okay, who is it who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who sounds like a whining, crying, depressed, and discouraged infant? Who has social conflict at every level in his life, on the job, at home, with his marriage? Who has needless bruises? They wake up in the morning and they have bruises all over their body and sometimes they don't know how they got them because alcohol anesthetizes. And who has bloodshot eyes? It affects the cardiovascular system. I had a psychiatrist who taught a class in my graduate training who said as he was going through med school, if you knew syphilis, you knew medicine. Because syphilis, he said, affects absolutely every organ system in the entire physical body. And so it is with alcohol. It gets into the bloodstream, and whatever is in the blood affects every part of the body. Solomon understood that. Who has bloodshot eyes? It affects the cardiovascular. Those who linger long over wine, they stay at the table. They challenge each other. Who can drink the most? They brag about who can handle the most who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Don't gaze at the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. And that's the way it's advertised, with all of its attractive properties. Uh, There we go. Are we having fun yet? Yeah. Uh, Weekends are made for whiskey. Endless opportunities. Superior drinkability, Bud Light, Light. Uh, and so on and so on. There you have it. There are the attractive properties. These people do not advertise the downside of it. Uh, here it is uh, listed rather cleverly. Uh, up there, the first drink, he kissed Dinah. The second drink, kissed Suzanne. Third drink, kissed Denise. Third, fourth drink, kissed the doorman. Down at the bottom, kissed the sidewalk. And actually, I took this picture in Kiev, um, Ukraine, just a few years ago of a man, uh, I I just did a brief morning walk downtown in Kiev, and this was an example. This was not the only guy on the sidewalk. I actually saw a guy stumbling and staggering and fell face first, flat on the sidewalk, bloodied his face. Some people came to his rescue. People just walk around these bodies on the street in Kiev of drunks who have, and they have that term, that's their term, kissed the sidewalk. 
In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. It is, in fact, a liar. It pretends to be something that it is, in fact, not. It makes three lies, and I've listed those three lies. First of all, it pretends to be an upper. It is, in fact, a mood elevator, a disinhibitor. It's fun and games. They're... Um, funny for the first 20 to 30 minutes, it's, it's an upper. And then it hits. It hits on the downside. And it is, in fact, a depressant. It is poison, literally poison. As a matter of fact, we used alcohol in my high school workshop class to cut varnish. If you got varnish in your stomach, maybe you need some alcohol. And it is a sexual suppressant. Now, some would avoid it for this reason. It increases sexual desire, but it decreases sexual performance. Alcoholics are notoriously impotent. So it is, a, in fact, a liar. Your eyes will see strange sights, and your mind will imagine confusing things. There are two terms in alcoholism for the for what Solomon is describing right here. One is DTs, delirium tremens, and the other is hallucinosis. Now, hallucinosis is a basis for some of the jokes we make about alcoholics. Seeing pink elephants, well, they don't see pink elephants. Hallucinosis is not like the hallucinations of schizophrenia. Hallucinosis is like a <clears throat> A cancer of the thought. A cancer of the thought. Um, I'll give you an example. I had two, a husband and a wife, both of whom were recovering alcoholics, seated on the front row in my abnormal psych class. And they said, "Uh, Mr. Ewell, do you mind if we tell the class about our DTs? No, you go right ahead. And the guy said, well, uh, I, I was drunk. I had drunk very heavily. And he said, I, I was, it was at night, and I dreamed that my thigh was opening up, and a worm was crawling out of my thigh, and it came up toward my head, and as it got up toward my head, its head got bigger, and it started to swallow my head. And he said, I screamed so loud, my wife told me later, it literally shook the house. Well, that made me want to run right out and get a six-pack. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of rigging. I had a a man who had been a sailor in the Navy, and he said, you know, well, I never knew that was in the Bible, but that was my experience drinking in the Navy. He said, my bed would not be still. He said, I would have to put my hand down on on the floor, feeling uh, I had to steady my bed. I, I couldn't sleep. Research, fascinating research in psychology. Uh, one study is on dream deprivation. How long can you go at night without dreaming? Now, everybody dreams. Some say, well, I don't dream. Yeah, you do. You may not know it, but you do. But sleep deprivation. How long can a kid, and we would have films and classes in grad school of kids who would go without sleep. And uh, if they go without sleep for about six nights, they go to sleep. I mean, I've seen them standing asleep, and they would dump cold ice water on their head, and they would not wake up. 
after about six nights without sleep. But in studies of dream deprivation, you have a control group, experimental group. So the control group is awakened equally number of nights, equally number of times during the night as the group um, that uh, are deprived of dreams. Now, you you can tell, uh, you folks who are married with spouses, if you stay awake tonight for uh, about 30 minutes and watch your spouse sleep, after about 30 minutes, you'll see their eye, eyes begin to roll under their heads. It's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. Now, that's when they start dreaming. And that's the richest dream time. And without going into much detail, but brain waves during that time are what called paradoxical sleep because the brain waves, when you are sleeping and dreaming, makes it look like you're awake. You have almost the same brain pattern uh, in the dream state as you do in awake. Now, they go about three or four or five nights without dreaming. They're awakened as soon as they start to dream so they don't get to dream. After six nights without dreaming, they begin to have hallucinations in their wake state. Alcoholics lose REM sleep. That's the reason their minds have to make up for that lack of dream time with hallucinosis, hallucinations, delusions. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. It anesthetizes. That's the reason we don't want them driving. I don't want my pilot drinking. I do not want my surgeon drinking. They beat me, but I did not feel it. And then after all this, when will I wake up so I can, what? Find another drink after you've been through this? Yes, Solomon understood the powerful addictive properties of alcohol. Okay, <clears throat> there uh, is a guy working at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. He's a specialist in alcohol detoxification. He works in the uh, therapeutic center of Mayo Clinic. You know Mayo Clinic. They say of Mayo Clinic, if Mayo can't find it, you ain't got it. Top medical hospital in the world, one of them. Jerry Richardson, a former medical missionary from Africa. He's a psychiatrist at Mayo Clinic. He lectured on our campus a few years ago. I asked him to come to our class. He lectured in my class on two different subjects, one on depression and the other on addictions. And he said, this is something that we have researched at Mayo Clinic, willed deprivation. In other words, how long can you go without eating? You say, you know, I haven't eaten for a long, long time. I'm starved. You know, we don't know what starvation really feels like. I don't think probably anybody in this room. But if you fasted, uh, you know, I, one time I went on a two-day fast, and tree bark started looking good, you know? Well, uh, anorexia nervosa, some women and some men go without food until they die. Karen Carpenter, leading famous case that really introduced us to the problem culturally of anorexia nervosa, going without food. But most of us, when we get hungry, we find food. How about water? Even if you're fasting, you need water, uh, even more than food. You can't go very long without water. You're going to die. Uh, sex, some people think they're going to die without sex, but particularly 17- and 18-year-old college students I've known, no, you're not going to die. 
I, I realize the attention, but you're not going to die. Elimination. Dr. Richardson said it doesn't, it's not very common, but it does happen where persons will not to go to the restroom until their bowels literally explode. We have a saying, when you got to go, you got to go, right? Well, <clears throat> that's a rare problem, but it does happen. Then sleep deprivation. I've already mentioned, without sleep, you say, well, I can't get my kid to go to sleep. Let me tell you something. Your kid will go to sleep. It may, may take a while, but they will go to sleep because you cannot go very long without going to sleep. That's been proven in the laboratory. And then there's the need for air. You ever had anybody push your head underwater and hold it underwater or suffocate you with a pillow or something like that for a little while? I don't know about you, but I get desperate for air. Dr. Richardson says that the drive level of it, <clears throat> the drive level of an alcoholic for the next drink is that close to your and my need to breathe. When we understand that, I think we are beginning to understand why the alcoholic will suspend all relationships, family, friends, job, whatever, in the world in order to get it. Solomon understood that. I drew this because this is not generally taught even in high schools. And for a few years, I traveled around several high schools on what was called um, Operation Snowball and Operation Snowflake. And I always had with me a, um, a um, highway uh, cop, policeman. And they, they would say, uh, some things are never taught in the high school. Why? Because so many high school teachers drink and they, they're, they're not willing to really expose the high school students to the dangers. But here um, is a little known fact, and that is that there is the same amount of alcohol in each of these drinks, a goblet of wine, a can of beer, or a liquor, um, whatever. <laughs> exactly the same amount of alcohol. Now, the proportions, of course, in uh, volume uh, is different, but the amount of alcohol is exactly the same. Okay, what is drunk? <clears throat> uh one of the big questions in these circles is drinking a moral issue or a medical issue? And my answer to that is yes, it is. Initially, the choice to get involved in drugs and alcohol is a moral decision. I have to make up my mind. If I engage in this, what are the consequences? If I don't engage in this, what are the consequences? So then I make the moral choice and I decide, well, I'm going to start drinking. And as, as soon as I do, it begins to affect me physiologically. Then it turns into a medical problem. So it begins, I think, as a moral choice, but it very quickly becomes a medical choice. Now, um, blood alcohol content, or BAC, is the key factor in drunkenness. Uh, as an example, one to four beers in an hour for a 150-pound male. One beer, 0.02%. That's not, that's not very much, but already judgment is impaired. The accident risk is increased three times. 
professional race car drivers on just one beer hit pylons. They're already thrown off as professional drivers with just one. Uh, 0.05, impaired thought, trans, uh, time-space disorientation. They become disoriented. 0.07, their emotions are affected. They begin to talk incessantly. Behavior is exaggerated. 0.08, which is DUI now in the state of Illinois. Utah was the first state to have it as 0.08. Now it's in almost all the states, but it's definitely 0.08 in Illinois. They tend to drive fast. Most kids under 21 kill their friends drinking. In adults over 21 are more inclined to kill themselves as a result of drinking. <clears throat> now that is the definition of DUI in Illinois and many states. However, um, Highway patrolmen's, <clears throat> highway police have told me, and I've heard them say this in meetings with high school kids, most often that is the level of alcohol, the average level of alcohol in a DUI. Way over. That is more than twice um, the .08 needed for a DUI. Um, okay, this is four beers. Uh, this... 10%, the accident risk is six times over that of anyone else. 15% blood alcohol, car wrecks are 25 to 1 over non-drinkers. Point two, where most DUIs are arrested, their speech is slurred, motor action depressed, emotions exaggerated. I had a recovering alcoholic in one of my classes, and I asked him one time, I said, now, <clears throat> you've quit drinking, but I said, could you take me on a Saturday night type binge? What it's like to go on a Saturday night. Yeah, he said, e, well, I can do that. He, he did die before he was able to take me out, so I never got to make that trip. Uh, he did not die of alcohol, um, but it was, un it was really unfortunate. He wanted to be an alcoholic counselor, and he would have made a good one. Okay, stupor and confusion, point three oh, point five oh. they go into a coma. That's, that is close to lethal, if not lethal. Point fifty-five is lethal and they die, but usually they vomit, uh, throw up before uh, they die, and that usually saves their lives. Okay, I could say a lot more about that, but we got, we got to go on here. If I can move it. Now, did Jesus drink wine? The answer is yes, he did. Is it like the wine that's drunk today? And some people will argue and defend themselves on, on social drinking because Jesus drank wine. What he drank was nothing. Nothing compared to the wine of today. And I'm going to prove this to you by my own research. The distinction in the Bible all through the Old Testament is between wine and strong drink. They are distinguished. What is strong drink? That is a mix of one part water to one part wine. Deuteronomy 29.6 gives you an example. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink. There it is, wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Here are other references that make the same distinction. Athanasius, a Greek scholar in 200 AD, wrote, unmixed wine is only drunk by barbarians and Scythians. In other words, straight, only the worst reprobates in the culture drink that. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud commentary, Jewish commentary says, 
in or, mix for the Passover, mix water to wine, two to one generally, but for Passover, mix it three parts water to one part wine. Twenty-two Passover cups would equal two martinis. Needless to say, the bladder would be affected long before the mind if you were drinking Passover wine. Micah 2.11 says, If a man should go about to utter and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for these people. You deserve somebody like that. That's a pretty, a pretty strong and terrible indictment Micah makes. Uh, very quickly, I want to go through this. <clears throat> this is actually applied to alcoholic and drug-addicted families. But this can describe, I think, the family structure of any family that's experiencing a great deal of stress. And you'll be able to pick out some of these characters probably uh, in your own families. Here is the dependent. He is usually, I have the husband, it's not always the husband, sometimes the wife or the kid. Uh, the alcoholic. But you see, uh, you see here a projection of blame. He blames his wife. Um, he uses alibis, rationalizations, and excuses for his drinking, and so on. But inside, he's angry, he's fearful, he's feeling guilt, uh, he, and shame, he is struggling, he is having a war going on inside of him. Here is the chief enabler. This often is the wife of the alcoholic. She will buy it for him, knowing, well, he's going to get it anyway. She has to wear the pants in the family. She has to go out and get maybe a job or two in order to keep the family um, together and not realizing that actually she is enabling her alcoholic husband. She's not helping him. Then you have the family hero. This is often the kid who is excel. He's the one who's the outstanding athlete in the family. Uh, he excels academically. In other words, he performs with excellence in order to draw attention away from the real problem in the family, which is the alcoholic father. All of these characters draw attention away. Here's the mascot. Here's the clown in the family, the cut up, the crazy kid, uh, talks a lot, talks way too much. You never knows when to cork it. Um, just the family clown. And they're fun to have around. But they're usually uh, practical jokers and they're usually too much trouble. The scapegoat. Whoops. The scapegoat is the person in the family the family picks out to pick on. It doesn't necessarily even have to be the alcoholic, <clears throat> but they'll pick out one of the kids. Now, this is the kid in the family who may need counseling. He's going to probably be a problem in school, and he says, well, nobody believes in me anyway, so I might as well break the law, and if he, get, if he gets together, he's going to be the best alcoholic counselor in the future, but the trouble is they don't all get it together. I used to ask my class, how many of you think you were the scapegoat in your family, the one that the family picked out to pick on? Every kid would raise his hand thinking they were the, they were the family scapegoat. <clears throat> Oops. The lost child. This kid never causes anybody any problems. They're quiet in school. They come home. They're alone. They go to their room. They play their video games. Their best friend in the world is the family pet. Uh, but they don't cause any problem, but they're suffering. All of these characters are suffering inside, the same way the alcoholic is suffering. Uh, adult children of alcoholics, books and research has been done on adult children of alcoholics. Overdoses, just on the lighter side here. 
you deserve some, something on the lighter side. Uh, this is the way you sleep after two beers. This is how you sleep after three wines. Uh, here you are after four kamikazes. Here you are after a few bottles of shared wine, after f- a few margaritas, two bottles of Jack Daniels, and an evening after two beers, three wines, four kamikazes, margaritas, and a bottle of Jack Daniels. My, my kids would say, Dad, don't say drunk, say wasted. They're wasted. This was a TV show just a few months ago on Hallmark. It was entitled, When Love is Not Enough, Love and Hope. Here is the picture of Bill and Lois Wilson. Some of you may know who these folks are. Bill Wilson was the founder of Alcoholic Anonymous. He was the one who wrote the big book or the blue book, as alcoholics uh, will refer to it. He was an alcoholic. And what got him out of the cellar of his um, low point in drinking was when he began helping other alcoholics. But he started AA getting alcoholics together, and they would talk about how to help each other with their problem. And the women were outside sitting in their cars while the guys inside were talking uh, and criticizing their wives. And Lois, Lois realized, they're talking about us. Why don't we get together and talk about them? And so Al-Anon was founded by her. Now, she had tried everything in the world to cure him. Did she love him? She loved him with all her heart, but she could not cure him. Love was not enough. Now, I'm here to say, after years and years of counseling, there is no more powerful change agent available to us in working with other people than love. Love is the most powerful change agent in the world. I believe that. But will it change everybody? No. There are some problems. Even love is not enough. And that's what founded AA and Al-Anon. First Corinthians, Paul Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves or greedy, nor drunkards. That, um, actually, that occurs 56 times in the Bible in some form, drunk. So that's a problem all through the Old and New Testaments. Nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Why? Should we be concerned about it? Because if one thing is very clear, and that is this, that God wants his people clear-headed when they make decisions about the kingdom. He wants us thinking straight. And when we're not thinking straight, we're not doing the kingdom its good. It's deserving. That's grace. That's what that is. 
That's with Almighty God, Jesus Christ, with open arms, welcoming us home again. That's grace. And such were some of you. That's what saves us. That's what brings us to invitation time, the open arms of our Master, willing to take us as we are and remake us as we stand together and sing our closing hymn.